So I want to say a very warm welcome to all of you. Uh, many of you we know, there's many familiar faces here. Um, but for those of you who haven't been here before or haven't met us before, some introductions. This is John and Chris and Sophie is here, and Sophie will be leading the mindful movement during the retreat. So I know many of you have actually traveled quite a bit today to get here, so we will probably not keep you overly long. Agreed? But it, it is actually, this is a, a, something of a special retreat that we offer here at Gaia House twice a year. And for me, it is so, so heartening to actually see so many people who are engaging in teaching mindfulness or training in mindfulness one way or another to, to really have the willingness to come here in this situation and deepen their own practice, their own understanding. And I think that is a remarkable thing, and that is truly inspiring. And, you know, my own sense is that many of you who are teaching or training in teaching mindfulness really, you know, do come to a place of seeing that the, the, richest, the, the, the richer your own practice is, the richer and deeper your own practice is, Actually, the more skillful, probably, and at ease you are as teachers. So I really applaud you for doing this. Um, So just to say in this retreat, for those of you who haven't been on it before, what we endeavor to do, actually is to make the link or to make the bridges as much as we're able to between contemporary applications of mindfulness and its pretty ancient origins in the teaching of insight meditation and the teaching of a path of awakening. There's a lot of language we will use here over these days, a lot of references that we will use um, to make those bridges. And you know, we're very, very clear that that language and those references are really not at all what you would take into your um, you know, practices or, or, or relationships that you have with clients. But they are really to hopefully bring as much clarity and sense of meaning into the practice and how it's informed. So for those of you who have been here before or been on retreat before, um, you know, there can be a, probably, for many of you, a, you know, a real sense of actually welcome, uh, a a sense of happiness even, on arriving in the beginning of a retreat, because you know this is a very dedicated space, and it is such an opportunity to kind of step out of so much of the busyness and so much of the doing of our lives, and to really have this space to tend to your own well-being, Um, to listen inwardly, to explore the practice. Some of you have not been on formal retreats before, I know, and perhaps not one of this length. And there can be, you know, something at times, an apprehension uh, about what this might involve. (laughs) It's an understandable apprehension. But just really to, to... say in the very beginning, you know, this is not an exam. (laughs) We are not evaluating you. You're not here to be evaluated. You know, it's not about performance. 
It's hopefully about you really being able to find that sense of ease and well-being in, in this situation. Sometimes when the Buddha would speak about uh, meditation and offer instructions in meditation, he would begin with the encouragement to disentangle from the world and to establish oneself in mindfulness and in solitude. And in the word disentangle here is very important because it's not about pushing the world away or rejecting the world or condemning the world. Um, it is much more disentangling, is much about much more putting down our sense of preoccupation. Putting down our preoccupations with what has gone by, our preoccupations with what may yet be to come, and our preoccupations that we can so engage with in the present. Of course, our life does follow us onto a retreat, and why would it not? You know, we find that our life follows us onto the cushion and onto the walk, our walking paths. And why would it not? And it's really recognizing that and what it means to be entangled and what it means to disentangle. You know, to be entangled is often about problem solving, um, solution finding, fixing. Whereas here, actually, what we're more interested in is, of course, the relationship that we form with those thoughts, with those memories, with those emotions, with those plans, as they arise in the present. Establishing ourselves in mindfulness and solitude, well, I think we all have a perhaps a sense of what it means to establish ourselves in mindfulness. And we know that it's a growing capacity. We know that it, it's an art and a skill that needs tending and attention and care. Solitude's an interesting one. You look around, you're not exactly alone here. Um, it's quite a few of us. But the solitude, and you know, this was also true in, in many of the communities around the time of the Buddha and today, I think the solitude is about not leaning. It's about not leaning on people. It's about not needing, not wanting, not looking outwardly, not expecting something externally that we are not offering internally. I think there's a quality of aloneness that comes through the silence that we will speak more about. But I think the solitude also comes really from the ways that we actually focus and commit our own attention. There's a, a, one, a, a new poem by Mary Oliver that I um, find myself liking a lot. She says, I've decided to find myself a home in the mountains, somewhere high up, where one learns to live peacefully in the cold and the silence. It's said that in such a place certain revelations may be discovered, that what the spirit reaches for may be eventually felt, if not exactly understood, slowly, no doubt. I'm not talking about a vacation. Of course, at the same time, I mean to stay exactly where I am. The part I love about this poem is, is about this sense of about where we actually place our attention, where we make our home. You know, my sense that coming on a retreat is much more than a, a physical landing. And many ways are, many things are, just as they were elsewhere. We arrive with our own minds, we arrive with our hearts, we arrive with our bodies, we arrive with our present moment experience, and actually, so in some ways, we're staying just where we are. But we make this kind of physical uh, relocation. 
My experience in teaching retreats is that beginning a retreat is actually more than just physically arriving. There's a whole kind of psychological and emotional reorientation that happens. And as as we begin the retreat, I would just like to pose two questions for your reflection and for your consideration. And one of those questions is, what, what would be asked of us to allow ourselves to be here most wholeheartedly, most fully? What would we need perhaps to be willing to put down to allow ourselves to be here most wholeheartedly and most fully? And the answer to that question is probably different for many of you. But some of the responses that arise are probably also universal. To be here most wholeheartedly and fully, we're probably asked to let go of some of the habits of busyness. But it might be more internal habits of judging, comparing, evaluating, obsessing. You know, there may be many things that we're asked to put down to be here most fully. The second question, I think, is, goes along with the first one, is what would be useful for us to cultivate to allow us to be here most wholeheartedly? Might be patience, might be kindness, might be compassion, might be acceptance, might be calmness. What I think is very important to to acknowledge is that the whole path of meditation, of course, is not just going through certain techniques. We all know this. It is a path of inner investigation. It's a path of inquiry. It's a dynamic path where we're engaging in every moment both with what is and what is possible for us in this moment. So we're not just going through some kind of routine, but having that kind of focus, that kind of inner attending of sensitivity and care, where we're actually really starting to tune in to the life of our bodies, the life of our hearts and minds, and to be able to see what is and also what is possible. Because as we also know, much of this practice is about learning to walk new pathways with confidence and with trust, learning to new walk new pathways within our own hearts and minds. Okay, so I think that's enough for me for the moment. Would swing this around a bit? So I would also like to welcome you, each of you, very warmly onto this retreat. And it's uh, the beginning of a retreat is an opportunity really to explore, really to be interested in, well, what helps the mind to settle and the heart to open? And really to make a practice of that, an investigation of that, what supports this settling and opening of the heart-mind. And as Christina said, that, that conscious choice to shift mode from a mode that is perhaps about getting or moving or Getting somewhere, maybe it's the mode that brought you here today, into a mode that is about settling and opening and resting. And human beings have been coming on retreat for millennia, really since 
the earliest days. And finding that this practice of simplifying really choosing to live and to direct the attention in a way that is more simple, is more steady, is more conscious than the usual pull towards multitasking that seems to make the shift into retreat mode more and more countercultural. And it's such a beautiful opportunity on retreat just to practice doing one thing at a time. To practice slowing down. Really, really slowing down. To feel how nourishing it is for the heart to be more unified. To be able to devote attention to this step. To this mouthful. To this breath. So really inviting you to savor the opportunity to simplify. And of course the body is such a profound ally and portal into a deeper, more present, more resonant mode of being. You know, as, as we know that embodied presence is really the, the meditator's craft. And so as you, you let yourself arrive here this evening and, and right now, really encourage you to choose the body, choose the felt sense of the body, choose the gravity of the body as your field for the attention, for exploration, for finding your seat here on this retreat. Let your senses open. Let your senses open. And of course, one of the uh, senses that has the opportunity to open in a in an unusual way on retreat, is hearing. And to arrive at Gaia House is really to find oneself in the midst of a very established silence. And part of what supports our practice and what supports this settling and this opening and this quietening of the mind is really to uh, commit to, to participate in, contribute to, even to be nourished by this profound silence. And so really an invitation Really an invitation, actually more than an invitation, a a, a real request. Um, As you move into this retreat, really to let go of the habits or the attachments or the 
compulsions that we all have that can pull us or keep us in the verbal realm. You know, this is such a precious opportunity that feels increasingly um, rare and um, necessary in our world to turn down the volume on the verbal and to sense that which is prior to it, the awareness, the presence, the depth that is prior to the verbal. And so, of course, part of what that means at a very practical level is switching off our phones. Really, switching them off. If, if you need, and maybe Romero said this in the opening talk, if, if you need to complete some... Um, business this evening just so so that you can put down your phone, put it away, then please do that tonight and then uh, turn it off, put it to the bottom of your bag. If you're using it as alarm clock, this is a great opportunity to explore the flight mode for your phone. As an act of kindness to yourself and to your own heart-mind, And also as an act of kindness and support to our shared silence and container in this retreat. You know, if if one attempts to make a phone call anywhere in Gaia House, other people will hear it and be disturbed by it. So really, you know, um, please... Switch it off. If it feels um, like the, the temptation is too strong, then the, uh, the coordinators have a safe place where they can look after your, your phone until the end of the retreat, if that would be helpful. And also all those other ways in which we keep you know, our, our addiction to, to words and language can, can, be, can be fed. So, so just, you know... This is not the, the week to be reading the novel. Um, and, and also, you know, I, I notice sometimes how it's easy for one's attention constantly to be pulled to the notice board during a retreat. And you sort of read the same notice again and again and again. Still says the same. You know, find yourself reading the tea packets, you know, just to get some sort of stimulus in there. And, and of course, we want you just to keep an eye on the notice board, but actually really to see what it is to guard that sense door of the eyes. And and really to decide, okay, I don't need to do this. I don't need to keep uh, reading stuff. And it'll really support this settling and this quietening and this opening of the mind. And of course, part of, of, of... uh, as Christina said, you know, part of the, the unusual um, opportunity of a retreat is to experience solitude in community. Beautiful thing. Solitude in community. And so as part of that, we ask that you don't um, write notes to each other. You know, if... if, if uh, you need to communicate um, a concern about somebody, please send us a note. Uh, or if, if there are practical concerns, obviously, please uh, send a note to the coordinators. But, but really just to respect the silence that each of us uh, has the opportunity to enjoy and also to cultivate in this practice. And the Buddha called that process ennobling. That learning really to honor and to align with and to open to and be nourished by a depth of silence. And it is, it is such a resource here 
You know, just even as we sit here now, just to have that sense, what is it really to turn towards the silence? To open one's attention to it and and to have that sense of being nourished by it. To let it be a support and a resource as you deepen into a quality of presence and kindly attentiveness. And really to, to know that the silence is also filled with a lot of kindness and well-wishing and friendliness here. I too would like to add my greetings to everybody, a warm welcome to you all in this retreat. You've heard Chris and Christina settling, you know, basically describing the background to what we're going to be doing, the container particularly here of silence, picking up on something Chris just said, which is this is ennobling. The Buddha's path, this path of training, was always considered to be a noble way of being, a noble or an ennobling way of moving into a sense of being. And the silence itself is, a, is an ennobling experience. It is a training experience, but it's also ennobling in the sense that it also gets us to connect often with some of our deepest senses of being in this world. And we can only generally do this in this profound silence. So this forms, as Chris has eloquently put it, the kind of container uh, for being here. Now, there are other containers as well. When we were kind of dividing up the tasks as who we're going to say what this evening, I'm very, very happy to speak about what I want to now speak about, which is what is generally called precepts. Interestingly, in the early text, these are considered to be five gifts that you give yourself. Five profound gifts that you give yourself. They are ethical guidelines and they're ways of being. And I would actually say they're not just ways of being in Gaia House, in this retreat. They're ways of being and concerns and guidelines for living our daily lives. Um, Many of you might know that, for example, in the monastic communities in in ancient India and still to this day followed in countries like Sri Lanka, Burma and Thailand, the monks live by a tremendous number of rules, 227 of them, ethical guidelines. Um, We get five. (laughs) It's quite a reductionism. Um, that we are asked to live by. And what is important about these is that they become tools for inquiry, (laughs) tools for inquiring into our ethical and moral lives. This is what's so important about them, this is what makes them so dynamic, is that they're not just a list of prescriptions of thou shalt nots. It's not a a sort of 50% Ten Commandments it's actually a way of beginning to inquire into our moral and ethical ways of being in this world, and particularly being here. They are considered to be rules of training, and in the language that they are originally formulated in, which is a language called Pali, um, which is an ancient Indian language which was used to preserve the Buddha's teaching, in, these, in this language, these precepts are couched literally as that, as rules of training. Sometimes in popular books on Buddhism, um, which you see, you'll get them just listed as basically things like don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in sexual misconduct, um, don't tell lies, and don't take drink and drugs. This does these precepts a major disservice. Um, I would actually say actually taking them as prescriptions is simply a default position. When we hear them properly, I think they become much more rounded, much more um, something which I think is useful in our lives. So I'm only going to give this for the first one, but it's, I'll give you the full formulation of it, which is I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. 
So this is something that's being asked of you whilst here, you know, not to get the bug that's flying around, <laughs> um, to immediately squish it or whatever. Uh, it obviously deeply implies don't kill, but it actually has a lot more profound significance than that. Undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. That includes yourself, but it also includes all our relationships of harm that we can engage in. And sometimes we both you know, deliberately and inadvert- inadvertently engage in acts which are harmful both to ourselves and to others. So in a sense of this settling of the heart and mind, it also allows this settling of us to be able to look at something like our relationships of harm. Obviously whilst here, as I say, to refrain, to refrain actually from you know, immediately squishing the bug, the spider, whatever it is, but also to take this space, this opportunity to look at our relationships of harm. Equally, the second precept, which I think again is done a disservice by being translated as just um, don't steal, it's I undertake this rule of training to refrain from taking that which is not offered. Not offered or given freely is actually implied in the original language. Now, in daily life, we can appropriate all sorts of things. Um, in our work situations, we appropriate you know, often the minutiae of, say, an office, paper clips, pens, paper, all these sorts of things, the odd telephone call, the, um, I don't know, the use of the email for private business as opposed to, you know, personal, you know, as opposed to the actual business thing. So there are all ways that we can appropriate things which are not offered, using others' ideas, taking others' ideas, not really engaging and developing your own thoughts and ideas. This can be another way of appropriating that which is not offered or given freely. So without going into too much detail, again, this is offering up a field of inquiry, a field of inquiry where we appropriate things which literally haven't been offered to us, haven't been given to us, just taking them, utilising them, from the literal stealing to the appropriation of ideas. So this is a a deep field of inquiry that we can look into. Here, of course, in Guy House, it means exactly what it is, don't take what is not there, not being offered to you. When we come to the third precept, again, the same formulation runs for this, but actually um, the usual translation of this says a lot more often about Western obsessions than it does about the actual precept, because the actual precept is to refrain from sensual and sexual misconduct. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Sensual misconduct. Now, there is one thing that I always try to make clear, many of you might have heard me say this before, that, so, that there's a big area of sensuality that gets associated with retreats. So much so that I often describe many retreats as basically eating sessions interrupted by meditation. <laughs> but we have one major sensory concern. You know, um, one of the things that happen to you when you come on retreat, as has already been said, you, know, you go into silence, you're asked not to read, to be distracted, to actually begin to look at your own processes. So food takes on a tremendous importance here. Um, all I'm saying is watch what happens. Yeah. Watch what happens into relationship to food. It can become an overwhelming, obsessional dimension to being on a retreat about thinking about what we're going to eat, what's going to come for the next meal. So this is a form of sensory indulgence. In our ordinary life, we overload the sensories tremendously, the senses tremendously. We overload them with all the medias that we have, you know, things that weren't present in the Buddha's time. Um, but we have many, many, many ways of distracting ourselves and overloading ourselves sensorily. Yeah. This doesn't mean to not appreciate our senses, but not to overload them, to deliberately overload them. And as you've heard, one of the things you were asked to do in this is actually to start to decrease our engagement <coughs> unwholesomely 
with sensory material. In a way, there's an invitation here in regard to the senses, which I think is summed up beautifully in a poem by Rilke, one of his sonnets to Orpheus, where he says, become the magic at the crossroads of your senses. Become the magic at the crossroads of your senses. Rather than just overload them. Obviously, a major part of sensory expression, particularly in lay life, is sexuality. And that's something you're being asked to refrain from sexual engagement, obviously on retreat of any sort. But again, it means in ordinary life, looking at those two dimensions, the way that we can overload ourselves and our senses, and the way that sexuality forms a big part of that, and how that can lead to inappropriate, sometimes, sexual relationships. Then we come to the fourth of the precepts, which again can be translated very starkly as don't tell lies. Um, But within the the formulation of it, it comes across as, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from false speech. Sometimes this gets extended um, into looking at other dimensions of speech as well to refrain from false speech, to refrain from harsh speech, to refrain from divisive speech, and to refrain from chatter as well. It often has, it's often prefixed by the word idle, chatter. Yeah. Now, this is an odd one, isn't it? We're asking you to be silent. Actually, you're not going to be silent at all. Even if you're not outwardly saying anything, things are going to be going on. We're always talking, aren't we? We never stop talking. Uh, one German philosopher said we, you know, we, we talk when we're silent, we talk when we read, and we even talk when we're asleep. You know, we're just always chattering away. Again, this becomes another field of inquiry. Look at the quality of those speech acts, even when they're not externally um, given voice to. Look at what the quality is. See how often our speech can form into telling ourselves stories, falsity, embroidering, in a way, telling ourselves lies. Look at the ways in which actually our speech internally can be divisive, dividing one person against another, possibly in your workspace, in ordinary life, let alone even here on retreat. Harsh, harsh judgments that are often made about others, Again, these don't have to be externally voiced. It's all happening here. And then there is the, God, the endless chuntering of the mind as it just chunters along, talking to itself, chattering away um, in what in the traditions is usually referred to as the monkey mind. Yeah. Just chattering, chattering, chattering. So this becomes another field of inquiry. Look at the quality of our speech. When we think of the... Four qualities of speech here, of you know, false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, and chatter. One could almost say, and I've said this many, many times here, is there much left to say? Yeah. This forms so much a part of what I call ordinary speech acts, both internally and externally. And then finally, there's the precept against basically taking substances which cloud the mind. This is the way it's formulated. Um, Implicit in the original language is the idea of taking strong drink, strong liquor here. Um, But it includes any substances which cloud the mind. Now, one could be just tempted to jump to the conclusion that the Buddha was a bit of a prude. You know, it's a bit of a killjoy, really. He wanted to stop us from you know, taking these substances which uh, you know, add to a little bit of the spice of life. No, this is not the case, um, as I'm sure you probably realise. If we look at the tenor of what we're engaged in over this week, the tenor overall of what we're engaged in is to bring about a degree of clarity. Clarity and peacefulness of mind. You know, beginning to start to see a little bit more clearly what is actually happening, what is going on. The curiosity, the interest that Chris referred to, all of this is part of it. Wanting to see clearly 
what is actually happening rather than fantasizing about it, you know, wanting other things to happen, but to be here with what is actually going on for you. Now, the reason for, if you like, this dimension of the precepts which actually gets us to engage with taking substance or look at our engagement with taking substances is actually because in doing that, in taking any substance which deliberately, and I mean deliberately, is aimed to cloud the mind in some way, to bring about some perceptual distortion, then we're going against the very tenor of what we're attempting to do. If meditation, this cultivation that we're going to be engaged in over this coming week is about anything, it's about gaining some degree of clarity. If I start to take substances deliberately which are going to disturb that, then I'm going, in fact, I'm sabotaging the whole enterprise to start with. So literally, again, if we think about this precept in our ordinary life, it's looking at the role of these kind of substances in your ordinary life. How greater or less, how great or lesser degree do they play in our ordinary life about having a good time or whatever it might be, whatever the the story is we tell ourselves. Certainly, when it comes to here, obviously it means literally refraining. Obviously, this doesn't include prescription drugs at all. It means anything um, that one takes deliberately, which is going to cause that degree of unclarity. So these are the precepts. These are the precepts. The five, as I said when I started, the five gifts. They're not impositions on you. They are five gifts that you can give yourself into living your life with a lot more engagement because it opens up the whole field of your moral, ethical life. Not just here in Gaia House, but outside if you take them out and use them as tools of inquiry in external life as well. That's me. Okay, so we'll end the evening just with a quite a short sitting period. So if you can find a posture for your body that feels alert, balanced, upright in your back, in your neck as much as you're able. to quite intentionally bring in your mind, your attention into the body, the felt sense of your body sitting. Just mindful of any areas where there might be any holding, any tension, the shoulders or face, stomach, allowing them to soften. Mindful of all the places where your body touches, contacts the ground, the cushion, the chair. The touch of your hands together or on your legs. Just sensing whatever sensations are present in those places.
and mindful of the body breathing. Sensing how your body responds to each in-breath, each out-breath. The expanding, the relaxing. just as much as you're able, just establishing a calm, attentive mindfulness within the breathing process. Breathing in with sensitivity. Breathing out with sensitivity. Equally present in all the moments, your attention is drawn away from your breath to something more predominant, a sensation, a thought. And bringing the same calm mindfulness into those moments, a simple knowing, and then a return that quality of collectedness within the breathing process.
bringing forth the intention to cultivate a moment-to-moment collectedness, present-moment mindfulness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.